sorry to shit on consultants so hard here, but <laughs> if all consultants died today, I think the world would continue. Maybe the stock prices of many Fortune 500 companies would even improve. We're interested in people taking more ownership of their lives, being more conscious about how they're living. I think about my friends and how many people have either stopped drinking or cut down on drinking and are looking for new ways to socialize that that just feel different and make you feel good after you experience um, rather than like, you know, went out on a Saturday night and now my whole Sunday's ruined and I'm hungover. Welcome to Brick by Brick episode 12 with Daniel Terrico, partner at Vine Ventures. Hello and welcome back to Brick by Brick, everyone. Today I'm joined by Daniel Tarakoff, who is partner at Vine Ventures, which is a VC fund that invests in not just psychedelics, but also mental wellness um, and well-being. And you, your fund's sized at about 25 mil, right? That's right. Okay, so what's the mission of Vine to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I mean, Vine was really started uh, alongside COVID emerging, which I think just revealed that um, we have a really bad mental health problem in America and, and really just globally. The kind of core reason it was started was in response to that that kind of shadow mental health pandemic that um, that we unleashed onto our society. And the second reason Vine was started uh, was we were really focused on the psychedelic space from the beginning. And around late 2020, uh, maybe even, you know, 2019, I guess some of it was forming. We saw that, you know, certain companies in the psychedelic space had a vision for the future that just felt dystopian and hyper-medicalized and, you know, very prescriptive about how psychedelics should be used. And it was, you know, not a future that, that we aligned with. And so, you know, big motivation and, and the reason why psychedelics are a big part of, um, you know, our portfolio and our focus is that uh, we wanted to, to find and back companies that, that shared a aligned vision for the space. Uh, that was um, something that, you know, I think we can look forward to and, and that really takes advantage of the power of that, that psychedelics have uh, rather than just sort of, you know, following a traditional pharma path. Would I be right in saying that you're looking for companies that are kind of bridging the gap between the mainstream and, well, yeah, bringing psychedelics to the mainstream rather than a lot of the early companies are very like for psychonauts and they're very aggressively psychedelic to the point where I don't think many average people would try it. But your investments like Othership seems like a more mainstream approaching company. Yeah, uh, look, I'd say we invest across the full value chain of the psychedelic space. And, you know, a big part of that is the drug development category, which, you know, today still a stigma exists with psychedelics and is probably not going to be, you know, quickly accepted by a lot of people. But um, still, we're trying to develop psychedelics through the traditional, you know, FDA pathways, the medical model. We also want to support other ways of accessing psychedelics that might be more approachable um, through through state regulation and decriminalization. Um, but to your point, you know, we're interested in something broader than psychedelics, a, a bigger push toward, you know, I think people taking more ownership of their lives, being more conscious about how they're living, uh, being more conscious about how they're managing their health and well-being, 
uh, throughout their life. And there's a lot of ways to, you know, to do that and to become someone who is more engaged with that type of mindset. Uh, psychedelics are a tool that often helps like accelerate that type of thinking and mindset amongst people, but it's not the only way of, of getting there. And um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting ways of onboarding people to become more, um, you know, uh, to, to become more empowered, to manage their mental well-being more actively. Othership is a great example of that. Um, I think that, you know, what they've, uh, what they're building and, and what they've kind of already caught on to in terms of the community that they've, they've kind of gathered is really bringing people together in a space that is a little bit different from anything we've seen before. It takes elements of things that have existed, um, you know, hot, cold therapy, breath work, uh, community exercise classes, yoga, community spaces like Soho House. They, they kind of take all these different elements of spaces that have existed and pull it into one. And I think that, you know, I think about my friends, for example, and how my, how many people have either stopped drinking or cut down on drinking and are looking for new ways to engage and socialize that um, that aren't you know centered around alcohol or that just feel different and and make you feel good after you experience um, rather than like you know went out on a Saturday night and now my whole Sunday's ruined and I'm hungover and you know whatever it is uh, so yeah I think Othership is a great example of a company that is you know, building some new type of experience that's going to reach a lot more people beyond those who are interested or maybe have experience with psychedelics by, you know, touching people who who maybe otherwise wouldn't engage in things like therapy um, or psychedelics or, or other ways of even um, getting engaged in, in mental health and mental management. I mean, it sounds awesome. For people who don't know, it's uh, there's a breath work app, right? Like similar to Calm or Headspace and then a physical space in Toronto. And you're saying it's a crossover from Soho House with all these wellness things. And I believe I heard you say DJs as well on a different podcast. Yeah, they, I mean, what's really cool about it is, you know, take like a, an exercise class, like a Barry's Bootcamp, which kind of like took the world yeah, by yeah. storm. And, you know, they scaled and they're, you know, one of the best in class type of, of companies in, in that, you know, group fitness class space. Um, Othership, is able to have people in the space during, you know, the traditional business hours where they can host classes. People can go in just to use the space freely as a, as a spa, doing hot cold therapy on their own time. They can join breathwork, yoga classes, different types of experiences. They do all sorts of cool, uh, innovative types of, of courses with different teachers. Um, but then at night, uh, you know, they can also use the space to, to host parties and social events, have DJs come in. Uh, again, not like a club where you're, you know, doing a bunch of drugs and drinking, but uh, just a space where you can be sober and meet people who are like-minded and, you know, care about their well-being and are just interested in trying, um, you know, interesting new experiences that that are good for them. So I think they've they've hit on something really interesting. They they're crushing it in their their first location, which is in Toronto. Uh, they're expanding later this year to a second location in the Toronto area that should open in. Q3 or Q4 of this year. Uh, and then their next, you know, really big push is their New York launch, which is going to happen next year. And that's, um, that's, I think, really going to put them on the map. That sounds sick. They need to come to London. I feel like that would be so popular. That sounds cool. 
I'll let them know. You, I think they're, you know, yeah. they're working on bridging from Canada to the US and, you know, international expansions on the on the horizon. That would honestly just fly in London 110%. That's a sick idea. I love ideas where it's like you know how there's at the moment loads of people are making like SaaS companies and B2B like new accounting software. I I wish more people made like real life things and experiences. And that sounds like an experience that like adds a bit of color and texture to life rather than just like efficient software. Totally. Yeah. yeah I mean, even this just in general, when I think about, you know, what I get to do, which, which I kind of fell into and, and absolutely love, um, you know, I think about like, what is my alternative and like, what else would I do? I love venture and I love being in this space, but you know, I meet people who are, you know, similar age, you know, also starting out in venture and, um, you know, investing in like B2B SaaS. And I know there's a ton of money to be made. There's some interesting innovation. It's changing people's lives. It's helping, et cetera. But like, I couldn't imagine a more like dry yeah. topic for me. I, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm actually really interested by your career path. So I, I was at Strategy and I uh, did consulting for, for five years and, you know, happy to talk about the, the ups and downs of that. But um, by the end, I was certainly ready to, uh, to get out. Actually, you know, before the end, I was certainly ready to get out. And um, I went and got my MBA after that. Uh, so I moved out to, to the West Coast and did that at Berkeley. And um, that's when I started my newsletter, which was, you know, focused on the mental health and well-being space more broadly in different startups that were emerging there, uh, doing interviews with founders and kind of just, you know, following different investments in the space. Um, and then kind of actually entirely separately from that, I, I got connected to the Vine team, um, which was ironic just because like, you know, when I was in the MBA doing that newsletter, the whole idea behind the newsletter was really you know, use it as a tool to build a network out in a space I was passionate about and uh, hopefully be able to leverage that into recruiting for a role in venture at the time that I thought might be focused on on mental health as my niche uh, more broadly. And then, you know, found myself even a little bit more specific in, in the psychedelic space. Uh, but yeah, that the newsletter was a ton of work uh, to start up and manage. And I still keep it going a bit, but in a much simpler, um, simpler kind of format, uh, just cause I don't have the time that I had when I was in the MBA, but, um, but yeah, it, it's just funny how, you know, the path into venture and the path into like a niche space, like psychedelics, like there's no defined way of doing it. And so you can try all these things that you think might get you in the door. And for me, the newsletter was very much that thing. Um, but at the end of the day, it, you know, it wasn't actually what, what got me in and got me the job. It paid off in, in plenty of other ways. Um, you know, one of our, uh, our big investments and portfolio uh, investments that we made uh, was one of the companies that I featured early on. Um, and I've met a lot of people through that and continue to expand my network in the broader mental health field. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's just funny how the career mm -hmm. paths and entry points can, you know, you think you need to go one way and then another one is what ends up paying off that's sick i love that i don't think enough people realize that you can with the internet now you can create your own luck in a lot of ways like if you're interested in something start researching just post content about it and try and make it as good as you can 
and then opportunities will come up. Um, even if it didn't lead directly to your job, do you think the fact that you've done that gave you like things to talk about in interviews, confidence, because you know about the space and all those other benefits? I think it didn't really necessarily, in my case, help me with interviewing or, um, or necessarily confidence. I mean, I, I do think it helped me learn more about what was happening in, in the mental health field more generally. And, and, you know, anytime you know more about a space, you're more confident discussing it and talking about it. So I guess from that angle, um, I would say if anything, the main benefit I got from it was, um, it was just meeting founders and having a way of being able to connect with whoever. I mean, like, you know, I was just some random person who reached out to CEOs of, of mental health companies and some were people that were easy to access, you know, especially some of the first ones that I did were, you know, just kind of like first person to respond to me and in, in a smaller kind of early stage startup. But after having done, I don't know, five, six, seven issues of it, uh, I was able to pretty easily contact some like, you know, bigger name mental health founders and, you know, get responses pretty reliably. So the, the kind of access that it opened up, I think was, was benefit. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I've definitely felt that with this podcast as well, because it started with friends like Brom and now I'm speaking to like people like you. It's amazing what, actually, yeah, from your perspective, did you manage to look at the podcast before you came on? What were your impressions of it? I did. Um, I listened to the Brahm episode um, and then I started, I started listening to uh, uh, Dylan, uh, the episode with Mindstate Design Labs. I didn't get through it all, but, um, but yeah, I, um, I really like it. I like, um, I like the idea behind it um, of kind of, I mean, I'm personally obviously passionate about leaving sort of traditional pathways and going to, to things that are a little unorthodox. And so talking about, you know, my story from that perspective, hearing other people's stories who've done that. Um, yeah, like I think once once I made the move personally into something that was just like off that beaten path that I always thought I needed to follow, um, looking back, I'm like, thank God I I did that and I wish I did it earlier um, and I don't kind of see any other way moving forward. So, yeah. And I also liked how you, at least the full Brahm interview that I heard, it's refreshing to hear a podcast where you just kind of shooting the shit and going wherever your interests kind of take you yeah. um, rather than, you know, a very structured kind of interview process that, that can get a little dry after, you know, an hour. Yeah, yeah. Hour. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell me about your story because strategy and is a good job. It's a very good job. And then yeah. what made you, what made you leave? Sure. Uh, let's see. So I'll back up. Uh, I'm originally from Michigan and, uh, you know, a small suburb in Metro Detroit. And I think, you know, it was just like a pretty good traditional, like regular suburban upbringing. Um, I kind of always just like did what I thought I was supposed to do and I did it pretty well, you know, like did get good grades in school, you know, had a good, good friend in social life. Um, you know, went to, went to university of Michigan for undergrad and, 
you know, met a bunch of cool people and I studied business there. And that's kind of where I went down that path initially. And, you know, at the time when I was in school, the two hot things to do were investment banking or consulting. And, you know, this was like right before <laughs> tech was like just emerging. Some people were going into tech and it was kind of like a weird thing at the time. You're like, oh, you're going to take that risk and panned out very well for, for some people. Um, but it was pretty much, you know, if you were gunning for it, you were doing banking or consulting. And to yeah. me, banking was like, I couldn't imagine a worse job. Um, I, A, I'm not like, you know, the quantitative finance whiz. I'm never going to be the person who's like the best at modeling, you know, for some late stage growth equity fund. Um, and I just like it, you know, I'm all for hustling, but like the culture at the time was also just like so shitty and it was just not like something I wanted to subject myself to. Uh, it didn't feel like it was something that was going to lead me down the path that I wanted to go. Consulting on the other hand, you know, it also had shitty things about it, but, um, to me it, at the time it was very sexy and exciting. It was like, okay, you get to travel, uh, every week you get to go to cool places. You get to, uh, work on a bunch of different projects. You don't have to pick one specific company to be at. Um, you learn really quick what you want to do. The exit opportunities are just like, you know, pretty much anything you want. Um, there's so many different things you can, you can do afterwards. Uh, you work with really smart people. Uh, it, it just had it all. I was like, I, I knew I wanted to do, to do consulting from a pretty early, um, stage in, in undergrad, maybe like my freshman year, I, I kind of already had it on my radar. Whereas a lot of people, you know, didn't sort that out until maybe like junior year. And so did the whole consulting recruiting thing. That was a whole process and landed at Strategy and, um, and uh, at the time when I joined, when I, when I interned, it was a company called Boozing Company um, that was you know, a private consulting firm, uh, probably 3,000 people. Um, I really liked the culture of it. Uh, I would say, you know, it was, it was kind of like reputation wise, like number four after, after your McKinsey Bain BCG. So I felt like it was kind of a cool little like underdog spot to end up in. Obviously I also applied to, to McKinsey Bain BCG and got rejected from the law. Um, but I was happy with where <laughs> I landed and, um, and yeah, I, I loved the summer internship, met some really cool people. Um, and then when I joined full-time, the kind of transition happened where uh, PwC had acquired uh, Boozing Company. It was rebranded to Strategy and, and by the time I was starting, you know, the full time position, it was you know a new firm sitting within not a three thousand person company globally, but a you know PwC a two hundred thousand person globally, basically its own country. And um, I think the effects of that uh, on morale and company culture, you know, they took a little while to settle. It still very much felt like the boozing company kind of vibe uh, for the first probably two, maybe three years, but just naturally over time being a part of a big organization as they're continuing to fold it in, um, it just kind of like degraded a bit of the, like what I really liked about the smaller feel company. Um, so that was one of the, you know, the big reasons that I wanted to, to get out and do something new. Um, the other, though, was that um, even in, in Booz's prior days, prior to being acquired, um, one of the differences between Booz and, and the big three consulting firms is that Booz was a, uh, an industry-specific uh, firm. So 
um, you had an alignment to a particular industry. These were like broad industry groups, but still um, it gave you some sort of focus. And a big part of why I was attracted to consulting in general was the ability to, you know, see a lot of different things, you know, figure out what it is that I might be interested in and passionate about. And so being forced into like one particular industry was a bit of a downer for me. Um, for me, that was healthcare. And uh, I started off working with a lot of payers, insurance companies, which I really hated. I was just like, <laughs> felt like the driest space to be in. Uh, and it was also like all this new lingo and like a really high learning curve to like know what is happening, especially in the US healthcare ecosystem, which is just like fucked in all sorts of ways. And, uh, and yeah, it just, it just didn't like excite me much. And I shifted around a bit. I, I then moved over to the provider side where I was working with like hospitals and academic medical centers. And I liked that a bit more. I felt like I was a little bit closer to like making an impact or like touching patient lives. But um, still, it just like the idea that like I didn't pick this focus area and I was kind of being like pigeonholed into it more than even like it being healthcare per se, just like that it was like anything that I was like forced into. Um, just didn't, it felt like I didn't have control over where my career was going. Um, so I'd say the combination of that with the way that the culture was going um, for the broader firm kind of pushed me out. And um, for a while, you know, I was, um, I was thinking about leaving probably two years in. My plan had always been, again, because I had like this like structured plan and way I thought life was supposed to go. I was like, all right, I'm going to you know, I did well in college. Now I got into this good consulting job. I'm going to do two years in the consulting job. Then I'm going to leave and get my MBA. Then I'm going to do something else after that. Like I had this whole idea of what the path was supposed to be. And I found myself two years in when I thought I would be going back to get my MBA. And it just didn't feel like the right time. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. Um, and I had seen a lot of friends leaving from consulting who seemed to just kind of leave because they didn't like consulting anymore and wanted to get out of the lifestyle, but they were just kind of like hopping to new jobs. And then I would like watch them do that. And, you know, some, some, it went really well for that, like really found something that aligned with them. That was a cool position. Um, but a lot of people just left to leave and ended up in like a role that, sure was like a strategy role somewhere cool or like a, you know, some other company outside of the professional services space. Um, but a lot of them just like seemed also unhappy. And I think like the lesson there is like every job is a job. If, especially if you're not like working for yourself and, and you're not a founder, which also has a ton of its own really hard drawbacks. Like you are subject to a boss who is going to tell you what to do and you have to do it. And that's going to come with some downsides. And um, yeah, I think I, I had more patience about leaving while I was sorting out, like what would actually be a better alternative? Because at the same time, like I, I didn't love the work. I was getting annoyed with, you know, the bureaucracy and this like idea that we're supposed to make slide decks that like have impact for the companies and we're defining the strategy and blah, blah, blah. Like it's just a bunch of corporate speak largely. And, um, yeah, I don't know felt I wanted to, to have a better um, idea of, of what I hopped to before I, I made that move. After uh, five years of doing that, I eventually was like, yeah, it's fun that I, you know, 
built up all these travel points. I, I have a comfortable lifestyle. I was living in New York at the time, which I loved. Um, but I'm ready for like a change. I feel like I'm wait, I'm, I'm now at the point where if I stick any longer, I'm kind of wasting time. Um, and it feels like I need to be building toward something that, that I'm passionate about and excited about. So that's when I finally applied to MBA programs and landed at Berkeley and, and moved out of, uh, out of NYC and, and over to the, the West coast. Um, I'll pause and make sure I'm not like going no, anywhere you don't want good. me to go. May I interject with a question cool. before we get on to the next bit? Please. What do you think gives a work meaning? I definitely feel that with different types of work I do. I either I'm drawn to it or I'm repulsed by it. But what, why is that? What's the fundamental things? It's a good question. Um, I think a, a big part is autonomy. Um, having the ability to self-direct and, um, you know, kind of shape what you do. I think a part of consulting that that really didn't have meaning for me was, you know, like you have a defined project and you're serving a client that is expecting some deliverable, which is usually just a slide deck and some analysis behind it. And you're usually like working toward some sort of like predefined assumption of where the answer is going based on, you know, the partner team's expertise and, and guidance. And it just kind of felt like this, like engineering of an answer to make an end product that you were kind of like trying to make. And you didn't, you didn't have so much kind of like independence to decide how to take the work or, or what would be you know, an interesting approach to use. It was, it just was a little bit more constricted, I found. Um, I think you could find meaning also with something that you, you know, we, we make meaning in our own lives, right? Like there's not necessarily any meaning at all. I mean, you're talking to an atheist, so um, I might have an interesting answer for you here, but like, I think we can, we can feel, we can make ourselves feel like we're doing something meaningful in many ways. And if you can convince yourself that you're making some impact or difference, I think that's probably the main, the main thing that creates meaning in work. And in consulting for me, that was just like a hard no. I'm like, you know, you can't convince me. Sorry to shit on consultants so hard here, but <laughs> I am just not convinced that in 90% of the, the consulting work that exists that like anything that meaningful is created. Like if all consultants died today, I think the, the world would continue. Maybe the stock prices of many Fortune 500 companies would even improve, but <laughs> alas... You know, that's, that's the way it goes. So I don't know, um, in my current role and like where I feel I have meaning from it, it is certainly the autonomy piece. It's certainly the, like, um, the, the feeling of an impact piece because I'm, I'm working on something bigger than me, which is also probably a big piece of it. Like, like, you know, 
this this movement that's happening with psychedelics and the the progress that's that's been going on um i mean it's not it, it feels new because this like industry is emerging but it's built on you know the backs of people who've worked on this uh underground for decades it's built on indigenous communities that have had practices with psychedelics in in ceremonial ways for centuries in some cases um you know it's built on so much and to play some tiny part in helping shape something that is going to exist and flourish whether i'm in it or not um is kind of like a nice way of thinking about it for me i feel like um like when i see that there is a direct way that that i can have an impact in and how the space will unfold, you know, by putting money behind a particular company that then has a chance of becoming a, you know, playing a significant role in the overall industry. It's not me that's actually doing anything. Um, it's the, the founders and, you know, all the people in the ecosystem that are actually building the space. But you do feel a little bit more of a tangible, like you, you kind of helped shape something rather than, you know, just making a slide deck that, get shelved after the final presentation is made. That's very interesting. I think you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice there. I reckon you're having more impact than you maybe think. But uh, yeah, it's, it's true. Like, I think the way I think about it a lot is I work in consulting and I work with startups. Um, startups, it feels like there's a bubble and it's getting bigger and new opportunities are coming. Whereas consulting, working with big Fortune 500 companies, the bubble's already grown. It's as big as it can be. And then it's like, feels like it's dealing with problems within the bubble. So it's not breaking new territory necessarily. I feel like new territory is more exciting. That's a good way of putting it. On, okay, so then you did an MBA. In the UK, MBAs are not as popular as they are in the US. So why do people do MBAs in the US? And why did you just do it? People do MBAs in the U.S. for all sorts of reasons. Um, it really is case dependent and it makes sense for some people and it doesn't make sense at all for other people. Um, a lot of people who end up doing it, it doesn't make sense for it all. And, and I think they you know, end up regretting it. Um, for me, you know, I had the business background from undergrad. I had five years in consulting, which many, you know, can consider could consider like a mini MBA of sorts where you're getting a lot of business experience. So I, my purpose at all was not the education. Um, it was not like the prestige factor or anything. I would say the main factors were the time away from any responsibilities, any work to really like think hard about what I want to do next. And, um, I think that was like, in retrospect, probably the most important piece for me was just like, you know, you can be in a job and be like, I want to switch jobs and I'm kind of recruiting on the side and I'm thinking about what I want to do, but like fully not working. Like I had so much time to just do like random conversations with people about whatever I wanted. And, and, you know, it's like, it's a luxury that, um, that is not, um, I, I think that's just underappreciated. And you know, you can do that by like quitting your job and, and just having time off. But like the MBA is like this amazing situation where like the outside world is perceives it as 
oh, you're like actively like busy and doing school and like you're doing something when in reality you have a ton of time. Um, it's like this protected way of, of like giving yourself time without looking like you're taking some big gap um, away from working. Um, and then the other thing for me was the network. Um, you know, I wanted to expand, um, expand my network of friends and professional connections and, um, yeah, I mean, I got some amazing, um, you know, lifelong friends out of, out of the program and, and amazing connections. And, um, I think like those are the types of things that just compound with time and, um, the more like big distinct networks of people you can put yourself in, especially earlier on in life. Um, I think probably there's no better like investment you can make. And so for me, those were the two kind of primary motivating factors. Who are some of the best people that you met? Oh God, met some awesome people. Um, one of my best friends, Daniel Maclups, a South African guy who uh, is running a, a crypto company uh, called 42 in the DeFi space. And um, he's just a legend, like such a good dude and um, and just like a hustler who, you know, wasn't going to do something traditional and just kind of like went for it and started a company and like is figuring it out and is still figuring it out and like, I don't know, it takes a certain mindset to be that type of person that will jump in and do that. And if you look at like any successful entrepreneurs and people that are like, you know, really, really made it like it's it's more often than not the people that like went out and built and like did something and, and like went after it and failed early and often and then like, you know, figured it out on their third or fourth or whatever try, not necessarily the like people who followed professional services paths through their entire career. I mean, you can make a lot of good living that way and, and be very successful, but the like outsized, like real big success people are the people that, um, that kind of go after it. Another example that comes to mind, this was, this was pre MBA. This is my, my undergrad, but is, um, is Alex Lieberman who, uh, uh, founded this newsletter called morning brew. I remember at the oh, time in like say. undergrad, I've yeah, he's like, you know, he's a G and, and, is continuing to do all sorts of interesting uh, entrepreneurial things. But like he was so far ahead of his time, like in undergrad, I was very much in the mindset of like, okay, yeah, like you do investment banking or consulting. And I remember he was like, you know, printing out these like newsletters, like that was kind of like a newspaper that he would like hand out at the business school. Um, and then he like got a job, I think at Morgan Stanley in like sales and trading and then like, like just like decided to quit and like go full time on this like startup doing like newsletters. And it was just like psychotic at the time. Like, I mean, <laughs> in my head, it was like, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, I, I didn't even, it just didn't even make sense at all to me. And now looking back, it's like, well, I mean, obviously it was a, it was a massive success, but even if that had failed, like, I think that's an incredible way of approaching things like to be that young and in undergrad and like, be out trying your first business and, um, and like, you know, even if that fails, like you now know all of the, like those, like you've, you've learned the simple mistakes, you know how to avoid those next time. You're more ready to go at it the second time. So, yeah, I think, I think when I think about a lot of the people in my MBA program, it's the people who are doing things 
off the beaten path that are more interesting to me. Another friend, Ali Vergara, who is this Chilean girl who um, is working at a, at a fund called B Partners, investing in, in deep tech stuff. Um, one of my other best friends, David Mancy, who's this British guy uh, who's, who's starting his own AI company. And like, there's just, yeah, there's just like a lot of people who, um, who didn't follow the standard paths out of like traditional recruiting um, pathways that I just have a lot of respect for and uh, I think are going to go really far in life. And, um, and I've got a lot of great friends who also went into consulting post MBA and all of that, but God bless them. They'll, they'll figure it out in a few years and <laughs> do something cooler after. You've touched on it a bit that you invest in early stage companies. You know, all these people, what do you look for in, in the company or what do you look for in the founder? Yeah, we always say that, you know, we, we are looking to invest in, um, the right people doing the right thing for the right reasons. And I think it's, it's true with any early stage investing, um, it's definitely true in the psychedelic space, though, just because of, you know, how many opinions there are on how this field should go, what things are interesting to explore, what things are, are not, and finding people who are values aligned and, and understand um, the power of, of how these, these compounds can be applied uh, are people that, that we want to back. Usually we want to back people who have experience with psychedelics themselves. It's not like a hard rule that we would set on people, but like more or less in practicality, it kind of is like, I actually can't think of any investments we've made where that's not the case. Um, so people who, you know, who understand the space, um, people who are also operating in that same mindset that I kind of just talked about, like who are you know, have a bias to action and are, are like builders. I'd rather invest in someone who, um, who like pivots their idea five times to, um, to get to the right one and is scrappy and is like constantly making progress and is tracking their progress and is, um, just kind of like moving forward at all costs. Um, then someone with like an amazing pedigree, but, um, just kind of like, has a more stale approach or more rigid approach to how they would do things. Um, so yeah. Off the back of that, I think you're actually the perfect person to ask this question to. And it's a question I really need the answer to in consulting. Um, you, you're, you're being sold, like you're the consultant. So you have to meet all these expectations and standards, um, on time to meetings, taking notes in meetings, um, following up, prequel agenda, you essentially have to be a machine operating and dealing with people. And I'm, I'm keen to know if it's possible in the startup world to be a bit more chaotic. And when you're pursuing something you're super passionate about, sometimes you might be working, you might not check, you might not see the calendar and you might miss 15 minutes of a meeting. Other, I do that all the time. Is, is that something that I, inherently need to cut and become more, I suppose, professional? Or do you think there's room for that as long as you're like apologetic and try and make up for it wherever you can and try and avoid it wherever you can? Sometimes you just get excited and carried away. Yeah. I mean, look, like startup 
life is inherently chaotic. Um, like I, I think there's, there's two pieces here, right? Like you're going to have like a mad, crazy schedule and you're constantly going to be pulled in different directions and have to like reprioritize things. And you're inherently going to like miss things uh, a lot of the time, way more in the startup life than in some sort of professional services background where the job itself is demanding that you like adhere to deadlines and things like that. So it's going to happen. Um, and yeah, there's a lot more like, um, allowance of that type of behavior in the startup world. I think it's like about figuring out what are those top priorities and always making sure you're getting the top priorities done and not letting the big things slip through the cracks. Cause like a startup, it's like a never ending to-do list. Right. And so inevitably the things toward the bottom of the list are going to get dropped all the time. Um, on the flip side, the second point would be, I do think having professionalism is a differentiator in life in general. And there's certain practices that, um, that stand out and that will get you opportunities that if you don't employ them, uh, you otherwise wouldn't get. And I think, you know, being communicative, um, sure, you can't make a meeting that you had scheduled. Um, you know, it's better to let the person know five minutes beforehand over a quick email. Hey, sorry, can't make this. Like, we'll follow up and then follow up and apologize and whatever, then not give them a heads up and let them sit on, you know, their laptop waiting for the meeting to start and it doesn't start. So I think you can have basic pieces of professionalism that you weave in. And that that's not necessarily a trade-off you have to make in the startup life, but it is harder. Mm. What impresses you about founders when they come to you? Like when you think to some of the more impressive ones you've seen, like what is it that they do? I would say the ones that impress me are the ones that just so clearly have a vision for what they're building and where it's going. Um, both in the like energy and enthusiasm that they have when they communicate their, their pitch and what they're working on and, and, and what they're building. Um, but also in a more nuanced way, which is where you, you know, inevitably will, will ask follow-up questions, trying to understand their, their business more or like, you know, kind of pull it apart. And, um, when a founder really has like a clear, crisp perspective on, what they've built, what they're building, where they're taking it. Um, they know the space so well and they've thought through so many scenarios that there's not like questions that could like stump them. Like they might not know all these, like if you ask for a certain metric and they don't have it on the top of their head or whatever it is, like that's not what I'm talking about. But it's like, if you're asking them like fundamental aspects of like the business model or like, what they think about how a certain customer base is going to adopt their product or service or like big existential risks that could happen to their business. Like there, those types of questions like don't stump them. And they usually have a really thoughtful mm -hmm. reply and answer that goes like way beyond something that, you know, me or anyone who's learning about a business for the first time um, would have ever thought of. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I was actually having this conversation with Dylan, not on the podcast, but another time in, about 
getting into venture because I think it's a really cool job. I think it's one of the coolest jobs you can do because you get to see inside loads of different companies, make money, make an impact on the world. So it's a cool job. And I was asking him about his route into venture and like the different routes there are. And he said, you can go in the MBA consulting way or the founder exit VC way. Um, so can you talk a bit about what you think about your route? Like what did you take from consulting um, and your whole career that you as a VC is now giving you power and advantage and strength? Yeah, I would say, you know, venture is one of those roles that just does not have a defined path in. I think the ones Dylan mentioned are probably the most common, at least historically, but are by no means the like definitive, you know, two ways. I've seen a lot of journalists breaking in. Um, I've seen people uh, who went the banking route and broke in. I've seen people who just like found a role straight in venture out of undergrad that maybe talked to the right person at the right time and found a way in. Um, There's really like no set path. Um, For me, I mean, I, I do think consulting provided some of the, you know, it was like my first job that I think has an outsized role in how you think about the professional world and how you show up in it. And so being in a structured kind of like high expectation environment uh, set some some standards that I adhere to that I do think uh, helps. But um, I mean, for me, even I wouldn't say consulting necessarily like led to the job that I'm in now. It certainly was a good brand like firm that got me probably into uh, the MBA program that I got into. And then being in that MBA program was a good brand school that I could then, you know, use to reach out to people and say, I'm, you know, an MBA at this school. So you kind of like pass a, a snuff test of, okay, like they've, they've been through some kind of like qualifications. Um, but at the end of the day for me, what, got me the job was just talking to a bunch of people. I mean, I, before my MBA started over the summer, I was already interested in figuring out what is this like passion of mine that I want to, you know, transition into. Um, Because, you know, when I was an undergrad and I went to consulting, I was like, this is my dream job. This is exactly what I want to do. And I was like, it's solved. Like I figured out my career. And working in a functional role that you think is incredible within an area that um, you didn't choose or you're not excited about uh, can degrade your passion pretty quickly, as I found out for myself. And so when I was at the MBA and I was going in again with a very firm idea of I want to move into a venture capital investing role as the function of work that I do, um, I had kind of learned that lesson of I don't want to end up doing that in some industry I don't care about. Um, And in fact, that was a decision I was, I I very easily made in the MBA program when I I had a different offer at another venture fund that was focused on healthcare. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to do the same shit I just hated doing in consulting for five years, but like in a venture role and now it's going to be fun. Um, So that was like an easy, okay, that's like, you learned that, don't don't go down that path. 
And instead, I functionally, you know, pursued the venture world from a recruiting standpoint, but I spent a lot of time thinking through like, what area will I love reading about, writing about, talking about, and just kind of like engaging with in my, in my life, uh, whether it's work life or personal life, like what, what will I just enjoy having around me all the time? And I was exploring a lot of things at the beginning. I mean, I was, I was looking at psychedelics. I was looking at mental health more broadly and a lot of the stuff that was happening there. I was interested in some consumer stuff um, and being more in like the mind of, you know, of a consumer and thinking about how purchasing decisions would be made and stuff, which was very different from the sort of like healthcare lens I had taken before where you don't really think about like consumers as much, at mm -hmm. least in, in the traditional world that I was working in. Um, and so, and then, and then also like music, like I was really interested in music. I was really interested in like festivals and live events and like experiences. And so it was like all these things that could have been the venture path I went down. And I kind of landed on mental health because of like a lot of macro trends that were happening. Again, the, uh, the mental health kind of pandemic that, that, you know, was going on and increasingly in the media um, was causing a lot of venture investment to flow into the space and a lot of discussion to happen, a lot of new companies forming. Um, I also chose it because of my background in consulting focused in healthcare. It was an easier transition to move from a healthcare consulting background into mental health venture than it was from a healthcare consulting background into VC that invests in you know, music festivals or whatever it is, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. it's like finding the things that make the, make your transition as easy as possible is always like the best way or not the best way necessarily, but the, the most efficient way and increases your chances of being able to break in the way that you want to break in. Um, and on the psychedelic front, I just started like chatting with people. I was like meeting all sorts of people. I had no rules for who I would talk to because I just had all the time in the world. I was like, Hey, I found you on LinkedIn. Um, like your, you know, the research you're doing at UCSF is, is super interesting. Um, I'm getting my MBA and I'm interested in psychedelics and like, I want to learn more about your path. Um, do you have 20 minutes to chat? And I would do that. Like I did that like over a hundred times with people who were researchers, clinicians, academics, uh, lawyers, nonprofit people, business people, um, you know, like it didn't matter who the person was, if they were like touching the space and I thought their path looked unique or interesting, I wanted to chat with them. Um, I had, you know, probably 75, 80% of those conversations were like worthless from a practical standpoint of like getting me a job or benefiting me in any given way. Um, but because it was something that I cared about and was like excited to learn more about, um, it wasn't really worthless. Like I learned more about some new perspective of the field uh, and had a quick whatever 20 minute conversation and you never know where, where those connections lead. And um, for me, getting to Vine was like a very, you know, like those conversations were the direct reason that I got to Vine. It was again, like oh, I, did no that. I was doing at the same time this, this newsletter and you know, writing that thinking, okay, I'm going to get in front of mental health founders. I'm going to build relationships. I'm going to get in front of, you know, mental health investors. And I'm going to like use this to like find my way in. And meanwhile, like, you know, Vine, I, like, they don't, I don't, I don't think Ryan, the 
partner of Cloudivine even knows that I ever wrote that newsletter or that I write it. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I met, you know, I met a researcher who was studying psychedelics. We ended up having like an hour long conversation that was just super interesting. And I still keep up with her. And she, you know, afterwards was like, you should chat with the UC Berkeley Center for Psychedelics. And I was at Berkeley um, and I asked her for an intro. She introduced me to, to the director of that. And I tried to set up a call with him and he's like, yeah, I'm busy, um, but maybe you could talk to, uh, to this guy, Fede, uh, who works at this company called MAPS, which is the organization that's taking MDMA through that mm. DA approval process right now. And they're really the leading, you know, kind of organization in the whole field. And, um, and you know, so that was, a, that was a big kind of connection to make. And um, I talked to Fede and like we had an amazing conversation. And again, it was just like, Hey, just looking to learn more about your path. What are you doing? And, you know, he had kind of a similar esque background. He had gone to, to Stanford for his MBA and, and gone in more traditional kind of tech roles before and then left to go join this like, you know, wacky nonprofit psychedelic company. And um, after that conversation, you know, and I told him what my kind of goals were of getting into VC, he was like, here's, you know, I know, I know three venture funds that are, um, that are investing in, in this space. Um, I'm happy to connect you to them. And he sent introductions to three different funds. One of them never replied to me and one of them did and it went nowhere. And the other one was Vine. And, um, Ade, yeah, what, a guy. Never know. what a guy, what a guy he is that he is. That's sick. I love that you had the hustle to go and do that. Why don't more people do that? It's not easy and it takes time, I guess, is probably the reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't get why either because like you just I've always found like investing in building relationships and meeting people like it is a hard one to learn that it has big payoff, but I've always seen it to have big payoff in the long run. But it's tough because you like, you know, like I said, you know, 80% or whatever of those calls were just like what yeah. some people might call wasted time. But like, if you know, it took the 80% of the calls to get yeah. to what is not my job. So, yeah, I think people would benefit from understanding how those numbers work. It's like with anything, you need to do 10 to get one. But, if you, but that's a good thing because it means you can definitely get one. So, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you a question about VC? Sure. You don't have to answer. How much does a VC partner make and how much could they make if you had a unicorn exit or the fund does amazingly over 15 years? Yeah. VC is another one of those things where like, like if you ask me about consulting or banking, the answer is very straightforward. There's set salary bands and bonuses and all of these things. VC is dramatically variable. Um, I would say, you know, I'm in a very unique situation. First of all, my base salary is not that much money. Uh, my, I'm working on this, not even necessarily for the upside of, of equity in fund one, which I do have some in, but for like what I want to build as a firm and, you know, something that has a lasting mm. legacy. And so I have a much longer time frame on what I, you know, how I think about the value that could be generated out of this for me personally. 
Um, if I think about, you know, the type of work that I do as well, it's a very unique situation in that, you know, I joined fine as a partner, um, and a lot of venture funds, you know, give out partner titles because it helps with like, you know, people getting in front of founders and things like that. But in practicality, when they join, they're doing the role of like an associate, which is, or a senior associate, whatever, where, you know, you're doing deal sourcing and diligence and that's kind of the core job. Um, I truly joined as a, as a partner in that, like I run Vine more or less. I mean, I, I do all of our sourcing, I do the diligence, um, all of the sort of investment activities, but I also, uh, do our, you know, LP management, working with our, our individual investors, reporting, working with our auditors, working with tax, working with legal, um, we've done some SPVs and I've run those. And so like, I, I know how to run a venture fund now. And it's, um, it's a very different experience than that of like my peers that I, I talk to and build relationships with people who are, um, who are in the venture world, who, who maybe I met from MBA program or met in the broader ecosystem. Um, and so I think that's also why the, pay is just variable and not as, as like standardized in this space is because like, depending on the fund situation you're in your responsibilities and the type of role that you have could be dramatically different. So for example, you know, I think most, maybe not all, definitely not all, some, some do have, but a lot of people that are entering at the kind of like stage that I am at technically, uh, at another fund probably don't get carried interest in the fund or get, or get a smaller, you know, kind of like less significant piece of carried interest. But those people also probably have a higher base salary than me because I mean, we're, okay. we're a tiny fund too. It's $25 million. Um, if there's I were to like 20, think right? about averages, there's 220 um, as a, as a fund. Um, so that's, you know, the 2% annual management fee that the fund takes to kind of like have an operating budget. Um, so for us, that's, you know, that's 500 K, um, on the 25 million, uh, annually. Uh, but then there's the 20, which is the carried interest. And that's the portion of any of the profits generated. Once you return the fund back to investors, the original investment, you get 20% off the top of the additional profit. Um, for vine, it's actually two and 10 because we have, um, a structure to our fund where we built a, a reciprocity uh, fund that uh, donates half of our profits. So, oh yeah, um, that's so cool for me. Actually, from a from a financial perspective, it's actually the carried interest is is worth half as much uh, as well. So there, there's that. But again, it's not you know that's not what keeps me in the game. Interesting. So, what does keep you in the game? I think it is the. It's the opportunity that I've got right now, which is, again, this like full venture toolkit. Like, you know, I could have, I maybe could have, and, and probably would have failed. I maybe could have hustled my way into a top fund uh, that, you know, has a big prestigious brand name. Um, and again, that would have been a, a like fucking hustle. And, you know, I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't go to Harvard. Berkeley's great. And I think it's got an amazing reputation, but if you don't go to Stanford or Harvard, um, maybe Wharton, but even there, like 
good luck having a venture fund that's a top prestigious name come and recruit you. Um, it's, mm. it's just that competitive. And if I somehow did find my way into a, a fund like that, I would be, it would be an amazing opportunity and an amazing experience. It would open a lot of doors and give me a lot of prestige. And I would, you know, build an amazing network in a general tech ecosystem of founders. And I would learn a lot and I'd probably have some like board observer roles and would get best in class training on um, sourcing and diligence for, you know, two to three years. And then it would be like a kind of trek to like work my way up. And in a lot of those funds, there's not partner tracks. So it would maybe just be those two, three years. And then I'd go do something else. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, it's like, those are there. There's no doubt those are incredible experiences, but like what keeps me at Vine and what I've been extremely fortunate to have is like this very entrepreneurial autonomous environment where I am learning how to run a whole fund. I mean, I'm, I may not be getting that like best in class training of how to do the diligence and, and how to source. And maybe I'm not like getting inheriting a like name brand that gets me access to certain like very exclusive uh, networks, but like there is no other job I would have been able to have where over a two year time period of, of being here, I would know everything it takes to, to set up, run, manage a fund, manage SPVs. Like, like I can do that all now and I know how to do it. I know how to do it like right. And it's, um, it's. And you learned it for yourself. And I learned it for myself, which is, which is how I, I know how to do it. And that I know that I did it right. Cause I fucked a lot of shit up as I was doing it and realized yeah. I made mistakes and fixed it and all of that. And like, that's how you really learn. So I'd say that's the core thing. I think obviously being in, um, in this field and this space is also just like really keeping me going. Um, you know, I couldn't imagine a cooler field to be in. Um, I love it. It's like so exciting and like aligned with who I am and my interests. Um, and it's a, it's a dope lifestyle too. I won't lie. Like I live in San Francisco um, my partners, Ryan and Ozon are based in, in Zurich in Switzerland. And I primarily work, you know, from home or coffee shops on my own. It's a lot of autonomy. Uh, and then, you know, every two to three months I go to, I go to Zurich for, um, usually like two to three weeks at a time. And I work in person with them and the broader family office that, that Ryan also manages out there. Um, and it's just like, cool. I've been to, you know, like I did my mm. summer internship during the NBA in Switzerland. I've been back to Switzerland eight times, like since joining the fund. And um, yeah, the lifestyle, yes. the responsibility, the trust that I get in running things is, you know, unmatched. That is sick. I'm happy for you, man. That sounds like a good place to be. Appreciate it. One of the things that I, I believe is that it's much easier to do something when you can see a roadmap. Like when you start studying for an exam, if you read the contents of the textbook first, then start reading it, it all makes sense and you can piece it together in your brain. And I think there's a lot of things like VC, deep tech startups, art, which could improve the world if more people did it and did amazing things in those spaces. The part of this podcast is like trying to lay out the roadmap so people understand these are the building blocks. If this is, if you're passionate about this, this is the start of how you go and do it. 
So how would you say to someone, these are the building blocks of a VC fund? The VC fund, I think, I mean, it depends what stage we're talking. If it's someone who's going out as an emerging manager, like launching their own fund, it's very different than, you know, someone who's joining a fund that exists already and is trying to do the building blocks of like their career. Um, let's say, let's say someone coming from a non-backing background, non-consulting, just hypothetically could be a journalist or someone who's starting completely from scratch. Sure. So if you're starting from scratch and you just want to break in, I mean, there's a lot of ways of doing that. I mean, VC is quickly becoming very democratized and there's new kind of ways of breaking in. A lot of people will recommend, you know, starting with some small angel investing and, and maybe running some small SPVs do, using a tool like AngelList to do that where you can build up a track record. I think that approach is gotten diluted and crowded very quickly over the last couple of years. It's a way of doing it still and people are still you know, finding ways in that way, but um, it's, it's more challenging. You got to differentiate yourself. I would say the first thing to do would really be to figure out like what area and focus you want to have. And so whether it's like a particular type of business model or a particular industry um, or a particular like theme or concept that you're really, really passionate about, that is like a, a lifelong passion for you that you want to like continue investigating that you already maybe have thought a lot about, um, identifying that and spending the time to make sure that that is the, like the area and, and idea for you that you really want to go deep in. Um, I would say is something you should not take lightly in that. Like I would spend a lot of time, um, doing, even if it feels like, you know, you're like, ah, it doesn't feel like a lot of progress is being made because it's more just thinking and chatting with people. Once you find something that you, that you like, and I guess as a part of that process, as you're investigating it, the next thing would just be like building up a network of people who are aligned in that same field or theme of interest. And so making connections and figuring out what people are doing, trying to find and build a network that is unique and like a differentiator for you. And so like being willing to look in spaces that might not be obvious um, outside of generic circles and um, trying to find, you know, a different unique way of looking at a field, um, something that that has some sort of contrarianness to it where you can, um, you know, find value where others aren't, aren't searching for it. Um, and then the more you can make yourself a hub for, um, for any particular topic, the more leverage you're going to get. So if, you know, you decide, okay, I'm, you know, super passionate about furniture and I want to be like the furniture guy. If you create content on furniture and you put that out and you start putting it in front of people who are in the space and then you've got all the top furniture dealers who are interested in what you're putting out and they want to follow uh, the news that you're aggregating or the interviews that you're doing or the insights that you're drawing, like you slowly build up over time this network of, of people who may have certain influence or power in a field. Um, and, you know, this is like a tactic that this, this goes way beyond VC, right? Like this is just like, this could be used life. for anything, like if, if life in general, right? Like just thinking about 
what your objectives are. If it is VC, then the objective is, you know, breaking into VC, which means you either need to like get on the radar of uh, someone in your domain that um, that is already established and, and, you know, could provide you that opportunity that you need, which, you know, in my case was Ryan with Vine um, or build up enough of the criteria that you need where um, where you, you know, empower yourself to go go out and do it. And so that could be, um, you know, meeting and establishing relationships with enough founders, meeting and connecting with enough people who are high net worth individuals who have a vested interest in the, the area that you're pursuing. And, you know, once you have the pieces required to, uh, to make investments and facilitate those deals, just going after it and making it happen is, is the only thing stopping you. So I think, it, you know, it really depends on the individual, how comfortable they are, what background they have, um, how much they, um, you know, can use their skill set versus what types of skills they may need to rely on others for. And just like an understanding of yourself, your strengths, your limitations um, will probably get you enough to a point where some natural next steps and potential paths kind of open up and just following your intuition and, um, you know, continuing on with what conversations feel right. Um, you know, if you try something for too long and it just feels like too many dead ends and it's not exciting to you anymore, being able to like, you know, move on from that approach and try something new. Like, I, I think it just, it takes continued pursuit, continued moving forward, continued dedication to, um, finding something that feels right for you and the opportunities will present themselves, um, you know, as you, as you kind of take that path. That's great advice. And I think at the moment it feels like you can read all of these books about habits and routines, waking up early as if that's the answer. And I've definitely fallen down that rabbit hole a bit, but now that I'm, I've moved to London and I'm starting to meet people, I'm starting to see that you don't, you can't plan out where these opportunities are going to come from. They just come. And then if you had a rigid plan and woke up at 5am every day and went to bed at 10pm every day, you would miss them and you'd be miserable. So there's, would you say there's this thing about like following your intuition and not being so strict on a plan? I think so. Um, I definitely am someone who doesn't like any sort of strict routine. I mean, there are aspects of my life that I, that I do like routine on. I am deeply addicted to caffeine and will we'll run through <laughs> coffees every day, even when it's not a work day. I need physical exercise. I like to know that I can go to the gym at some point in the day. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, I'm not someone who's like, all right, like wake up at five, go to the gym, do this, do that. Like I don't have that level of strictness to it. But I more think about like the themes of like what nourishes me and what I want to make sure I'm incorporating. And sometimes I, uh, I fall short on certain domains, like I don't get enough sleep or, you know, I haven't been seeing uh, enough like of my good friends lately. And like, it's just about having sort of a constant rebalancing. So I think just yeah, like yeah. having a practice where you, you know, check in with yourself each, you know, whether it's on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis, whatever. Um, but some sort of, you know, frequency to it where you're not waiting too long, where you just kind of like feel out like, okay, what, what have I been doing really well that I've enjoyed? And 
and what have I been lacking? And then make sure that you like over index on the parts that, that you were lacking in the last kind of period of your life. And that's kind of the way I try to go about it. How does music play into that for you? You touched on it earlier and I'm quite interested by that. I love music. Um, what sort I of music? I find it, I like all sorts of music. Um, <laughs> I am really, I really enjoy like house and disco and funk. And oh, like, hey, you should come to London. Come to I'm ready. Let's house go. Yeah, no. You okay, come to our sick. events. <laughs> okay, cool. I'm, I'm game. Um, yeah, I mean, I, um, I love it all. I love what music, I love that music is, is like a mystery. It's not something we think about as a mystery. We just think about it as like, ah, this tech company, Spotify made this app and I can now listen to sounds in my head. But like, yeah. it, it's so weird. It is like <laughs> this, this, we're just playing sounds and different sound waves and frequencies and things are like hitting our eardrums and, and being interpreted by our brain. And for some reason, like something that has a beat to it, like feels good. And we want to like, we want to like go to the beat and <laughs> we like when like, you know, you're at a, at a show and you see a DJ and like they're on the beat, but then they do something unexpected. And it's like, Oh, like I wasn't expecting that way that that was going to sound or this pitch or whatever. And, it's just weird because it's so abstract and yet it's something that like all humans almost universally like love and are drawn to and different kinds of music. Um, but still like this, this playing of sound. And I also just find it interesting that like different people from completely different identities and backgrounds can be drawn to the same type of music. And, um, and also that you, you do notice patterns in, particular artists in the crowds that they draw and the types of people that they draw or the values that those people have that are drawn to those types of music. Um, I think that music data and people, people's affinity to certain types of music paired with their identity attributes is probably one of the most valuable data sets on the planet. Um, and I think mm. we're just really far away from being able to really draw the patterns and conclusions and understandings of that. But I think that music has a lot of insights for mental health um, and all sorts of behavior decisions and, and insights that we might be able to draw. Um, I don't know. That, yeah, I think, I think Spotify is an amazing company and in an amazing position. And, and, you know, like I, th I think this whole AI revolution and being able to apply, um, you know, analytics in new ways that, you know, something as complex as understanding music and how it might, you know, be able to be a predictor of certain things. Um, you know, maybe some of these things we can understand now with, with new technology that we, we haven't been able to as just like human analysts. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's part of what, what draws me and it's just a good time and I like having fun. Yeah. That's a really cool, um, viewpoint on it. I completely agree. It's like, what the hell, why is it, if it's too expected, it's boring. And then if it's too wild, you can't get into it, but there's a sweet spot somewhere where the, the flirtation between like expectation and surprise is just makes you excited. It's so strange. Next time yep. we, I want to, I want to dive into that deeper with you, but this cool. has been an amazing conversation, Daniel. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, I hope cool. we get to chat again soon. You should definitely stay in touch and you're Sounds on guest list, but any event you want to come to in London. <laughs> Dope. Love to hear it. Cool. Thanks, Ali. I really appreciate you having me on.